we do praise you because every good and perfect gift, every blessing flows from you to us. We're the recipients, the beneficiaries of your lavish goodness. And most especially, we are the beneficiaries of Jesus, his person, his work, his continuing work at your right hand, his promise that he will come back, he will return for us. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray once again that these gifts would be used, that his kingdom, the good news of his life, death, and resurrection would be published abroad here and to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 15. This, uh, this should be one of your favorite chapters in all of the Bible, most of you, uh, because it's about you. Uh, you should really, really like this chapter and be really, really happy about this chapter because it's about you. See if you can identify yourself in this, uh, in this passage as we read it together. Acts chapter 15 beginning at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, And they went from Antioch in the north to Jerusalem. So being sent by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them, to take from them a people for his name. 
And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The word of God for God's people. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the Savior, uh, not of one nation, not of one ethnicity, not of one people group, but you are the Savior of the world, and you have come into the world to take from the world a people for your own name. What a stunning thing it is that we are counted, numbered among that people. As we think about your word and think about some other things in connection with your word, grant your spirit that our hearts might be deeply encouraged and that you might be praised. May our lips be glad to rejoice in you as we leave this morning. We ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, It is good to be back. It is good to be back. Um, American runways are smoother than Tanzanian roads by a long stretch. Um, It is really, really good to be back in the good old U.S. of A. and to to be home here with you. I have to bring you some greetings and, and give you a bit of, a, of an update. Um, having just gotten back Thursday night from being gone for 15 days to Tanzania, have to bring you greetings from all the pastors and wives uh, who were at the conference in, uh, in Masoma, Tanzania, 225 of them. Uh, when they greet, when they send greetings, they, they wave. All right, so here are the greetings from the pastors, and when, when they wave at me, I wave back, so you need to wave back so that I can send an email and say, back at you, greetings back at you. Um, I have to bring uh, expression of thanks uh, from the many pastors who were supported by you through the Adopt Pastor program, um, the expressions of appreciation are too numerous. The names uh, you won't remember, um, but uh, just know that lots and lots of warm greetings from from the pastors and wives um, are sent your way for your generous support and the profound encouragement that it is to these folks. and And I have to bring you greetings from hundreds and hundreds of villagers. Uh, Over the course of the time we were there, we visited a half a dozen villages, um, and they, um, and I'll have a little bit more to share in this respect, Uh, just in a few minutes, uh, they are so, so deeply grateful for completed well projects, and some of you in this room have partnered 
uh, with villages over there to produce safe, clean drinking water uh, for people who don't have it, for people who have to, well, it's, it just defies description, really, the stuff that they, they have to deal with over there. Um, so greetings, expressions of thanks. Um, I want to take uh, this time this morning just to give you a bit of a report and uh, an update and some insights um, regarding what I've been privileged to see again this year. But I want to do it in the context of Acts chapter 15 in this passage we've read this morning. Um, Acts chapter 15 describes the first real controversy to strike the church, to hit the church. After Pentecost, the first real controversy, there were some other issues, Acts chapter 6, there were some folks being uh, left out of a daily distribution of food, and so some folks were set aside to meet that need. There were issues, but this is the first real controversy that has confronted the church. And so this is the first general assembly of the church, the first gathering of apostles and elders and leaders to think through this controversy. And the controversy that struck the church struck right at the core and heart of the gospel. Uh, And the focus of the controversy was essentially this question. On what basis will Gentiles be admitted into the church? On what basis will Gentiles be admitted? On what basis... Will you be admitted into the church? Because you're not Jews. You're Gentiles. You're from the ethne, from the nations. What's the basis upon which you will be admitted into the church? What is the basis upon which you will be saved? What is the basis upon which you will gain acceptance with the one and only true God? That's the issue that confronted the church. It sounds, you know, okay, I know the answer to that. Um, But for the church, in this first decade or so, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that was the crucial issue. What's the basis upon which a person will be saved, will be restored to fellowship with God, accepted by God, put in right relationship with God. It's the first controversy that confronted the church. Now, here are some things to remember as you think about this. Uh, let's remember this. Let's remember that the good news, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, the news of his incarnation, his birth, remember, There was a fair amount of celebrating at the announcement of the incarnation of Christ, the birth of Christ, the good news of the appearing of Christ, the good news of the inauguration of his ministry, Mark chapter 1, Jesus came as a king, he came bringing a kingdom, inaugurating a kingdom, the good news then three or so years later of his death and resurrection and then his ascension to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns as the king of glory incarnation, life of obedience, death, resurrection, ascension, the good news about Jesus Christ, 
which is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament had promised, that good news came first to whom? To Jews. To Jews. It came to Jews. Jews were literally the first to hear it, the first to believe it, the first to begin preaching it, the first to begin teaching it. Jews were the first elders. Jews were the first evangelists. Jews were the first church planters. It came first to the Jews. When Paul in Romans chapter 1 talks about the gospel, he talks about the gospel coming to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It came first to the Jews. People sometimes say, how come the Jews rejected Jesus? Well, they didn't. At least not all of them. Right? The Old Testament, we looked at this in Romans chapter 11. The Old Testament makes clear that there will be a remnant, a true believing remnant in Israel. Did the majority of people reject Jesus? I don't know. I don't know how you parse that. I don't know what the percentages were. Clearly many did. But remember Pentecost? Peter preached his first sermon. 3,000 Jews were added to the church, responded to the gospel, repented, believed, were baptized. So the gospel comes first to Jews. They're the first to hear it, first to receive it, first to believe it, first to preach it, first to carry it away from Jerusalem. And that then, all of these things, raises a fairly obvious question. How are Jews, these who have first received these glad tidings about Jesus, how are these Jews, after centuries of religious practice that includes circumcision as a sign by which, the visible external sign by which males, obviously, heads of households, males, are brought into the covenant community after centuries of that practice and centuries of attention to the law, law law-keeping of all kinds, how are they to think about their Jewishness? How are they to think about that? And especially as Gentiles start making their way to the church, because it happened. It happened. How are they to think about their Jewishness, particularly as Gentiles begin to hear and accept the good news of Jesus Christ? When a Gentile believes, when a Gentile embraces Jesus as the Messiah, how is he to be received? How is she to be received into the church? For centuries, if you were a Gentile, and you were drawn to Judaism and attracted to Judaism, and you were a male, you were circumcised to gain admission. You brought your family with you. You brought your household with you. Male children would have been circumcised. How do we think about all of that now? And there were two answers given. Two answers given, and you see those two answers in this text. The first answer is, they must follow the law of Moses. Verse 1 of chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Who were these people? 
verse 5 tells us that they were believers. They had responded to the gospel. Verse 5, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. What did they do? They, they brought all of that tradition, all of that history, all of that practice with them as they responded to the gospel. And it was an issue that had to be sorted out. Folks, these are not neat, clean, tidy things. Verse 5 identifies these folks who are insisting on this as believers, as those who are insisting that circumcision be observed, that they be ordered, these Gentiles, to obey the law. And then verses 6 and 7 tell us that there was great debate about this. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This is back in Jerusalem. The first part of verse 7, after much debate, after there had been much debate. So it was clearly a serious issue, not a clean, clear-cut thing like it is for us as we reflect upon it. We know the answer to the question, don't we? Someone asked the question, what do I have to do in order to be reconciled to God? to be accepted by God, to be restored to fellowship with God? What do I have to do? The simple answer is, accept what has been done. Accept what has been done. I get to preach both Sundays that I was in Tanzania. And I preached from Mark chapter 1. Mark tells us in verse 14 that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. You remember that phrase? I preached that sermon about a month ago here. Had to get it ready for Tanzania. The gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? Well, it is the gospel from God, but it is the gospel about God. And it was wonderful in a very pluralistic setting, speaking to very mixed groups in Tanzania. It was wonderful to be able to say, do you know what differentiates Christianity from all of the other religions of the world? Islam, Judaism, animistic religions, Buddhism, Shintoism. They have some familiarity with these things. What is it that distinguishes and differentiates Christianity from all of the other religions of the world? In all the other religions of the world, the God of that respective religion says, this is what you must do. This is what you must do. You must have this insight. You must have this spiritual experience. You must keep this law. You must follow this path. You must do, you must do, you must do. Christianity answers the question in this way. Christianity says this is what God has done. He has done it. Christianity does not say reach for God. Christianity makes very clear that God has taken it upon himself to reach for us in the person of his son, Jesus. So the answer to the question is, 
What must I do? I hope this is clear for everybody who's here this morning. What must I do to be accepted by God, received by God, made his child? Accept what he has done. Start to finish, beginning to end. In the life, death, resurrection, ascension, rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That's what distinguishes Christianity. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. Not your right thinking. Not your right behaving. Not your right praying. Not your discipline. You gain acceptance with the Father through what Jesus has done. And that's what this debate was about. That's what confronted the church early on. And I love this fact. There are three speeches that follow this lengthy debate that's referred to in verse 7. Three speeches. Peter, then Paul and Barnabas, and then James. Peter. Now, I, I was struck by this as I was thinking about this message on the flights home and you know, I was struck, I was thinking about the fact that we sort of watched Peter through the fall and into the spring and watched how Peter is always quick to open his mouth. Matthew Henry makes this delightful observation about Peter. It goes something like this. Peter didn't speak for the rest of the disciples because he was more able to speak. Peter spoke for the disciples because he had a more flappy jaw than the other disciples. I love how in this passage, verse 7, Peter waited. It seems that he listened to all the debate rather than jumping in at the beginning. After much debate, Peter stood up and spoke and related his experience. The experience that he had, you remember Acts chapter 10? The experience of being at the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman centurion, someone who is described as a God-fearer, but a Gentile and a Roman centurion. And you remember the story that Peter was given a vision of a sheet coming down from the heavens, and on this sheet were all manner of animals. There were unclean animals in this sheet. And the Lord spoke to Peter and said, Peter, take and eat. And Peter said, Not, I love this, nothing, in effect, nothing unclean has ever crossed my lips. That's not what he says literally, but that's, that's kind of the net effect of it. I've never eaten anything unclean. Nothing unclean has ever crossed my lips. And I wanted to ask Peter, of course, from which direction, Peter? Maybe not outside in, but how about inside out? How about inside out? The very moments after your great confession, Jesus called you a devil for trying to disrupt and get in the way of the purpose of God. Peter's just a fascinating guy. I love him. But notice what Peter says as he reflects and reflects upon and shares that experience 
with Cornelius and, and the vision and all of that. He, he says that God gave to them the Holy Spirit in the same way that he did to us, verse 8. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts in the same way that he cleansed our hearts. How? By circumcision and obedience to the law? By doing, doing, doing? No, by faith. Through the instrumentality of faith, accepting what has been done, not trying to do in order to have your heart cleansed. And then in verse 11, he goes on to say this, to challenge those who are listening. I'm sorry, verse 10. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, these Gentiles, that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? How does does Peter view the law? How does he view circumcision? Does he view it as something evil or wrong? Absolutely not. Read Romans chapter 7. Peter and Paul would have been in absolute agreement about the nature of the law, that it is holy and righteous and good. It isn't that there's anything defective in the law. The defect is in us, and the law becomes a crushing burden if it becomes the means by which you you seek to gain acceptance with the Father. And Peter, who's not always clear-headed about these things, if you read Galatians 1 and 2, you can see that Peter himself, even after a speech like this, Peter had a lapse. He was withdrawing from Gentiles because he feared the judgment of the Judaizers. And Paul had to correct him. And get him back in line with the gospel, is what Galatians 2 says. But Peter's not always clear. He's sometimes muddle-headed about these things. But here he is absolutely clear, both in what he understands the law to do, not because it's defective, but because we are defective. The law crushes. The law crushes. If it becomes an instrument, a means by which You seek to gain acceptance with a holy, perfect, and righteous God. There's only one way for that to happen. And that is by the person Jesus who was not defective and who bore the weight of the law and fulfilled it all, satisfied all righteousness to secure righteousness for those who would believe in him. Peter understood that the law would be a yoke, a crushing yoke, if this whole business of circumcision and keeping the law were forced upon Gentiles. And he understood also very clearly what we've already said, that acceptance with God is a gift received by faith. That's Peter's speech. And then there's speech number two, which we don't have. It's Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul, relating what they've seen on their first missionary journey on the island of Cyprus, and then in Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, in places like Pisidia and Iconium and Lystra and Pamphylia and Perga. You can read Acts 13 and 14 to see descriptions 
not only of their travels, but of the response of the Gentiles. So Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus the Messiah. Peter related his experience of it, challenged those who were listening that they not lay this yoke, this burden upon the Gentiles. Peter and Paul and Barnabas related their experience of seeing Gentiles come to faith in Christ as they preached the gospel. And then the third speech comes from James. James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus and the acknowledged head of the church. Stunning. James, you read Mark 3, I think I may have referred to this a couple of weeks ago. If you read Mark chapter 3, James was a mocker of his half-brother. James, along with the rest of his brothers, came for Jesus to take him away because they thought he was nuts. They thought he'd lost his mind, thought he was insane. And now James, having seen the truth by the grace of God, rises to speak and to defend Peter and to defend Paul and Barnabas and the stories they have told. And this is important, it's worth a whole sermon. He defends them not by defending their experience, not by looking at numbers, but by citing Scripture, by quoting Scripture. He quotes Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. And in effect, is reminding those who were there that this has been God's purpose and intent all along. What purpose? What intent? To gather Gentiles. God loves Gentiles. He collects them, you know. Amos chapter 9. Verses 11 through 15. You read the first 10 verses of Amos. It is, it is filled with words of judgment. Amos is one of those prophets, a prophet in Judah. A prophet who is speaking um, hard words to a rebellious nation. But in verses 11 and following, he speaks of another day, a future day. Listen to these words. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches. I will raise up its ruins. I will rebuild it as in days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. And then verses 13 through 15, which James doesn't quote. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. 
What is James saying as he quotes this passage? He's saying this is what God had promised. And brothers, it has come to pass. It has come to pass. It is here. Namus uses that phrase, in that day. What day is he referring to? He's referring to the day of the Messiah. He's referring to the day of the arrival of the king, when the king comes in power and glory and brings his kingdom, inaugurates his kingdom. And what's going to be the effect of that? He's going to rebuild what was broken. But notice from the original, from Amos, notice that as he rebuilds that tent and makes that tent capacious and large, as he restores it, look who comes to it. Edomites. Edomites. Who are the Edomites? One of the perennially hated enemies of Israel. In that day, when Messiah comes, he's going to rebuild the tent of David. And who's going to dwell in that tent? Who's going to dwell in that booth? Edomites of all people. But not only Edomites. People from all of the nations will come and will seek the Lord and will gather themselves together. Who's in view? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. And folks, this is not a new idea. It's not a new idea to Amos. Certainly not a new idea to James. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses of Genesis 12, the promise that was originally made to Abraham is a promise that concerns the nations in In your seed will all the nations be blessed. I've been reading in Numbers in my, as you know, less than perfectly disciplined Bible reading program. The program is disciplined. I'm not. It's like these handheld devices, right? It's always about the operator. It's not about the device. Numbers 15, 13. God says, if there's a sojourner among you, that sojourner is to be treated in the same way that a Jew is treated. There's to be no distinction between Jew and sojourner. It's a subtle thing, right? But God has always had the nations in view. He's always had the nations in view. And then there's this great passage in Isaiah, chapter 19, verses 19 through 25. I read this periodically when I get to it in my undisciplined Bible reading. And I think, what? When Isaiah spoke these words, what did the people who were listening hear him say? In that day, there's that phrase again, what day? The day of the Lord, the day of the Messiah the day of the messianic reign, the day of the Spirit lavished upon everyone. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord, to Yahweh, in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. 
It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior, a defender, and he will deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will worship with sacrifice and offering. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Where do they have to go in order to get from Assyria into Egypt? Right through the Holy Land. Right through the Holy Land. And in that day, oh my goodness, in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. If you're a Jew listening to Isaiah, you're probably freaking out. Because after Edom and Moab and some of those other local tribes that were opposed to Israel, who are Israel's great arch enemies, Egypt to the south and Assyria to the north. And God is saying, Egypt will be my people. Assyria will be the work of my hands in that day. It's all over. God's concern from the very beginning has been the nations, that he would gather from the nations a people for himself. And folks, this is what you enable me to see when I go to Tanzania. This is what you enable me to witness. You enable me to witness God continuing to gather people from the nations. There are 127 tribes in the geographic nation, Tanzania. And I get the privilege of meeting with a dozen, 15, 20 tribes as I meet with pastors and wives and evangelists and lay people who come from those tribes. I get to go see God continuing to fulfill his purpose of gathering the nations. And I come back to tell you at Christ the King Presbyterian Church that you are part of a very big story. A story that is way bigger than your personal story. And I probably need to go back to school, do a PhD in historical theology, just so that I can have some academic credentials in order to justify what I think has happened to us. But what I think is an inadvertent consequence of Luther's proclamation, embracing of, being set free by the doctrine of justification by faith, One of the inadvertent consequences of that, he didn't intend it, but over the centuries, I think it's something that happened. The gospel becomes so personalized and individualized that it becomes about me, my story. And I don't minimize that. I've said to you a thousand times, 
I'm really glad that I'm forgiven, justified, and accepted by God. But my little story gets pretty boring pretty quickly. And I'm here to tell you that you as a congregation are engaged in a very, very large story. The story of the advance of the kingdom of God in the midst of the world. And as that kingdom advances under the preaching of the gospel of the death, resurrection, ascension, rule, and reign of Jesus Christ, God is gathering from the nations one people for himself. And I get to go see that. And I get to go see people whose lives are different because you've let me go. I get to see pastors whose ministries are different because you've let me go. I get to meet with pastors and talk to pastors, as I said, who are supported by you. You're supporting an indigenous missionary. Do you know how much it costs to send a Western missionary to a place like Tanzania? $120,000, $130,000 a year. Don't know the language, don't know the culture. A lifetime of learning how to understand the world in which they live. And for 30 bucks a month, you can support an indigenous missionary who gets where he lives and understands how to communicate the gospel. It's cheap. And I get to see the benefits of that. I get to go visit villages where wells are being drilled, where people in this congregation, some in small chunks, some in larger chunks, are enabling us to complete these well drilling projects. Let me tell you just a few stories. Bunda Bomani. We planted, or we completed a well project there two years ago. Boo Graves and I had gone three years ago. This is public knowledge. The Graves made a gift, made it possible to put a well in that village. I got to go back and preach in that church this last Sunday, a week ago today. The church is now known as the church with the well. The pastor is now known as the pastor of the church with the well. They were able to build a church building because there is an abundance of water. They make mud bricks. They, can't, they don't have this kind of stuff. They make mud bricks. You've got to have water in order to make mud. And they couldn't have a new church building because they didn't have access to water. They've got this beautiful building. I mean, not by our standards, but beautiful by their standards. Dozens and scores, hundreds of people every day come to that well, walking 100 yards, 50 yards, a quarter of a mile, as opposed to two or three miles in one direction to an alternative water source. Hundreds of people coming every day. And here's the really cool thing. Not that these other things aren't significant. 25 people have come to Christ because of that well. 25 people are now on the membership roles of that church who've come in the last two years. Why did they come initially? To get water. What did they get when they came? Water. Living water. Water that will always satisfy Jesus Christ. Balili, another village, 10 people have come to Christ since a well 
was completed about eight months ago. Kurusanga, six, eight, ten people have come to faith in Christ. One man was converted. He became an elder. He now oversees the security of the well and handles the hours of distribution. Changed life because of a well project. Pastor of the church in Kurosanga said, you can mess with me, but don't mess with my well. Not because it's, it's doing all of the other things that it's doing. She gets it. She understands that this deed of mercy is leading to lives that are changed, not just at this physical level, but spiritually. Musenyi, seven new believers. Bukabwa, two years ago, there was no church. Completed a well project today. There are over 200 people meeting for worship. Big deal stuff, folks. Last week, when I preached at Bunda Bomani, I don't ever do this. Peter always does it. It's his place. It's his deal. Peter translated for me. Peter the bishop, by the way, his health is great. He looks fabulous. Not as energetic as he was before his surgery, but he is really, really doing well. He was the translator of old for me when he translated last Sunday. And after the sermon, when I sat down, he extended an invitation. This is in the church where we've completed a well, the church with the well, the pastor of the church with the well. Fifty people came forward in response to an invitation to embrace Christ. Fifty people. After the service, I got to dedicate that well. Folks, I think, I think it is true that people will believe the gospel when they see the gospel. When they see the compassion of Jesus, they will believe that the compassion of Jesus is real. 50 people, at least. I, I don't know. I mean, I just kept my head down. I couldn't believe these people were coming. I felt like Billy Graham. 50 people at least came forward to respond to that invitation. So this is just my encouragement to you with these few stories, I hope, rightly connected to this text in Acts. God's purpose from the very beginning has been to gather a people from every race, nation, tribe, and tongue through the work of Jesus received by faith. And you and I are a part of that very big, centuries-long, worldwide story that continues to unfold. God is gathering the nations. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you um, that in grace and mercy you've rescued me Thank you that you've given me, you've given me and you've given us this extraordinary privilege of partnering with some folks on the other side of the world and seeing the kingdom extended. Thank you that the kingdom has been and is being extended here in Vero Beach. But thank you that over these years as we've prayed when we've received tithes and offerings that you would use these tithes and offerings for the extension of the kingdom here and to the ends of the earth, Lord, you're hearing that prayer. You're hearing it, and we praise you, and we thank you. And we thank you together for the privilege of being involved in this glorious, this great, 
this fabulous story. Thank you that you are gathering the nations for the praise, the honor of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.